It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's an extra. I love doing weekend extras. Usually we've done it in the past when we've had too much fun the week of that podcast, the Wednesday it came out. And I was like, but there's more I wanted to talk about. And certainly with this week's guest, C.T. Nguyen of the University of Utah, philosopher, in this case, even more importantly, gamer, I thought, T, let's you and I talk about some of our favorite tabletop games. Now, you know, I guess we could open it up. I mean, this means card games. This means word games, et cetera. I don't think it means video games. I have a list, sort of my Mount Rushmore games. I know you you do. Without further ado, let's get started. T, would you like to start us off with, like, on your Mount Rushmore of tabletop games, what, what, what do you want to talk about first? Wolfgang Kramer's El Grande is this extraordinary early like in the Euro game explosion um, piece of brilliance. And I think it's a goodness that's kind of gone from this world now. Like people aren't designing games like this anymore because it seems to them too clunky. But the amazing thing about El Grande was there were only nine actions the entire game. And every single game, so it's best played with five people. Like there's there's all these pieces you move around. There are these rules for moving them around against other there's people. There's the but Castillo. The yeah, but the most interesting part of the game is you flip over at the beginning of each turn five potential actions uh, from the weakest to the strongest action, and then you hold an auction for what order you're going to get to select from the actions in. And you all have the same pot of money from the start of the game. So you get this incredibly rich, deep decision about when should you spend your money? What What's the turn order? When's the moment where you should spend it all because you're going to get a huge amount? Or when's the moment where you should spend nothing because actually you can get more than anybody else out of the lower turn order and so you have to get in everyone else's head? Love and the game. I, I often feel that modern Euro games, they've engineered out this kind of thick chunkiness. You get more like micro turns where you do like, I'm going to do this little thing, this, do this little thing. There's more like mechanical system and you lose the glory of that rich exhausting, overwhelming, get-in-everyone's-head decision. And I love that. Really said. I also love games that have multiple mechanisms, like, let's say, in this case, auctions, but also with a map. There's a dudes-on-a-map aspect to El Grande that you know, and anybody who's played it knows. And, you know, I, I really appreciate that one, T, because for me also... Um, it's sort of a forerunner of so many other games that in different ways mimicked it, but it's the pure quintessence. It's the simpler, doesn't take as long to play or teach, so rich, very Kinesia-like uh, in, in, in terms of the, that design. Wolfgang Kramer, just an awesome game designer. I'm going to post up here on our Mount Rushmore, Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, how could I not? Um, 1985, I, th I still own the first box set that came out. I think I was, yeah. I think it maybe came out a few years even before that. But for me, obviously, it opened up. It, it kind of channeled Tolkien, who himself was sort of a geeky dude from a few decades back. These days, we can all look back on Lord of the Rings winning the Oscars and all of the games that now mimic in different ways Dungeons & Dragons. I know you're a, a role-playing gamer. You talked about The Quiet Year on our podcast earlier this week. I don't really want to say much more about Dungeons & Dragons other than it's just so iconic I had to put it up there. Uh, let me respond to that. As a, you know, former Dungeons and Dragons player. Yeah. That's never been caught up in the in the indie 
renaissance of new style role-playing games, a lot yeah. of which are trying to fix the problems of the Dungeons and Dragons. Once you played a lot of the new stuff, I can't go back to D&D. Yeah. One of the best uh, criticisms of D&D I heard from this world is something like the system carefully mechanicizes shopping and killing and nothing else. <laughs> um, I mean, people respond late stage, like the later editions have added new things, but those are taken from this kind of indie world that I find much richer and more interesting. So there are tons of games here, but I'll put as my next pick, my favorite indie role-playing game, which is Apocalypse World, which is an extraordinary thing. There are all kinds of innovations in it, but the most interesting one I think is the degree to which the system and the questions in it are player-driven. So in Dungeons and Dragons, the way the rules are supposed to be, like if you're the dungeon master, you create a secret door, and then your players, if they're near it, they have to roll a perception check, and if they get it, they see the door that was already there. So Apocalypse World inverts the metaphysics. So the player rolls this thing that, like, you know, there's this move they can do called check the scene. And then if they roll well, they get to pick a question from the question list. And the questions are like, what's the best way out? What's my enemy's vulnerability, right? And wow. if they ask it, the GM has to answer yes. They have to create one. They have to create uh, They have to create an exit. They have to create a vulnerability. And some of the characters get special questions. Like one of the characters gets the question, instead of what's the vulnerability, what is the hidden sorrow that you seek redemption for? So you can meet like an enemy boss and, you know, I think they're going to fight. And my player instead rolls this and says, what is the secret sorrow that you seek redemption for? And I have to make up. I'm like, okay, the big evil villain is estranged from their daughter who's addicted to goblin. And then the story just shifts. So that, like that kind of player driven exploration yeah. is just so amazing. Apocalypse world. Ground up, organic. I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I think my list of Rushmore games is sort of the iconic thing that touched off the thing that led to better things. Yeah. And so I think I can go next with Magic the Gathering, which for me, yeah. again, 1993, I think Richard Garfield, who's previously been on this podcast, I just think that so many games have now borrowed deck building and, yeah. and taken it to just, just that innovation that, hey, this is a new card game. And you're playing with your deck and I'm playing with my deck, but they're actually different decks. And not only are they different decks instead of just playing from the same deck, but you get to design your deck. And so talk about giving agency to players even before they sit down to play the game. Of course, an entire industry has grown out of this. And, uh, and so I, I deeply admire it. I still have some old Magic cards that I think have more value today than they did before. I, like, I even like that about Magic. Magic is incredible. It, like a, a lot of the games I play at home are deck builders in the post-Magic space. So for my next pick, I will go a recent it, it, refinement of a long-known system. So Cole Whale is one of the most interesting game designers I know, and his game Root yep. is extraordinary. Do you know this game? I sure do, yeah. Um, it's he, he, uh, so Totally asymmetric. And kind of right. a war game that doesn't look like a war game because we're all in yeah. the wood we're woodland creatures. Yeah. So it was built on, so there's this old series of asymmetric war games called the coin series, the counterinsurgency series that were like, you know, it's the U.S. versus the Taliban versus the Afghanistan government. They would have different sides that had totally different, um, totally different motivations uh, and different ways of playing. So Cole Whirl took these kind of like 50-page rulebook, eight-hour games and boiled them down into this cute 
one hour learnable game, but the sides are totally different. So one of the sides, the Marquise de Cats, is the industrialist who's playing this like classically Euro game resource game. And another side is the Woodland Alliance, which basically communist rebels trying to like get together and get sympathy. And another side are these like, you know, um, military birds that are incredibly powerful, but incredibly dogmatic and have to stick to their plan. And another side is like an arms dealer trying to make the money. The lone dude. Yeah. It's just, I mean, but the fact that you play and you change positions through people that have, through sides that have totally different mechanics and outlooks is this like incredible manipulation of the medium of agency, right? You're shifting through different agencies on each play and seeing the same conflict from a different angle. So I think that game is unbelievably good. It is number 28 all time on Board Game Geek. We should briefly, and it's going to be brief, just talk about the system for rating games. Board Game Geek is the <laughs> magnet site that I know you use. I certainly have used it for a couple decades now. I'm big fan of it. It's really my second favorite website after our company's own, but I, you know, how we rate games, the system that they use, I think is perfectly good, but you're really good at looking into rating systems and questioning them. Do you approve of how BGG rates games? I mean, there's something... It's about as good as you could hope for for a monolithic rating system. Yep. But I always worry about monolithic rating systems. Actually, one of the ways that I got into thinking about metrics as a person that does philosophy of art was I started looking at the history of worries about wine scoring systems. And in general, one of the things that you get when you transition to these like aggregated scoring systems is a kind of evening out and monolithization, I don't like an evening out of what, like <laughs> instead of asking different people what their taste is and getting different approaches, there's this kind of apparently objective list. And the worry is that actually decreases the diversity of people's experiences. And yeah. that's, I mean, I find that kind of worrisome. This is, by the way, there's a similar effect that I'm really worried about. So I think we're losing a lot of culinary heritage because so many people, instead of cooking things differently the way they learned, Google and they get either the New York Times or the Serious Eats recipe. And it is both true that Kenji Alt Lopez's recipes are amazing and that it is, I think, like, you know, Conformist. replacing this massive, you know, richness of variety. Yeah, and you know, I I totally hear you. It, it's it's ironic because in a lot of ways with globalization, uh, we are now experiencing more things than we ever would have before. And there were um, large periods of human history where you, it was very unlikely you were going to go more than fifteen miles away from your home, marry anybody outside of that um, diameter, etc. And yet, um, here we are also talking about how you can actually create conformity when you create mass simplified rating systems and simplified scoring systems for humanity, how you can actually iron out all the interesting stuff. Uh, Zainab Tufeki, who's one of my favorite thinkers about new media, has this great Wired piece uh, about free speech. And one of the things she says is, you might have thought that like, you know, you get this massive democratic decentralization through Twitter and social media. But the fact that it's all filtered through a small number of ranking algorithms actually narrows the world's attention. The same things tend to rise to the top. And I think there's this worry where you have access to every recipe in the world. But as a matter of fact, like, you know, it seems like half the world now is making the same ratatouille dish, which is just the New York Times version. <laughs> All right, let's go with one more each. Um, I'm going to pin up Agricola because for me, Agricola 
I see now I've played the game 58 times. As somebody who tends to play lots of games once or twice, that I've actually given any game the attention, usually about two hours or so, 58 times probably says something important. But for me, um, worker placement as a relatively new mechanism first showed up, I think, in Kalis, which is another game I own. I think that was a 2005. Agricola showed up a couple of years later. Uwe Rosenberg, who's a brilliant game designer, has so many deeper, longer, wonderful designs. And Agricola, for me anyway, is the iconic game that combines that new, relatively new concept of worker placement, which we won't explain, because if anybody's listening to this weekend extra, they're probably already a gamer. So we're not going to break down things like deck building and worker placement in our Mount Rushmore conversation. But blending that together with, with resource management and especially with some card play where you're dealt a hand of 14 cards at the start of the game. And choicefully, you have to decide, should I play that? Should I build a brick wall? Should I hire somebody to come sing at my farm? These are choices that affect your end game victory points. It's a victory point game. T, I assume you've played Agricola. Of course. I mean, I think you could tell a lot about a person by their favorite worker placement game. Um, so let me think about my last game. So I could, in some sense, the the correct one would be Go, which is the game I played unbelievable amounts of time. I think my favorite worker placement game is Dominant Species, which is this pure slab of unbelievable chaos that I love. But I think I'm going to go for my last one. One of the most interesting indie tabletop role-playing games I've ever played, which is Microscope RPG. Have you played it? I have not. You are obviously very well-versed and studied and playing role-playing games, whereas I tend much more toward just like resource management, et cetera, Euro, Ameritrash, Euro, but not as much RPG. Do tell. I've actually probably played more Euro, Euro resource management games than RPGs in my life. But right now, this world of indie tabletop role-playing is the most artistically exciting to me. That's the one. Love it. It feels like like the 90s felt in Euro board games. That's the indie world feels like right now. So in Microscope so cool. RPG, you are collectively and fractally building the history of a place together. Uh you decide on an endpoint, beginning point, and then you build it in stages. You build like higher level like eras, and then you build like like the siege of whatever, and then you have these scenes. And the way you build the scenes is you can move back and forth through time, filling in history. And the way you build scenes is when you have two events that you don't understand, you can say like, "Well, how how is it that the elves and the dwarves were friends here and at war there? I think it happened because of a failed wedding arrangement. So let's have that scene." And then you all act and jump into a scene in history and act improv together until you have an answer to the question. And the most interesting thing is that Microscope was intended as a way to collectively build out the history of a campaign before you campaigned in it. So you can use it as your campaign starter and collectively build an entire thousand-year history for your campaign world. Yeah, world building. It's incredible. It's also just ludicrously fun. So T... In closing, obviously mentioning the world of indie role-playing games, is there a magnet site that anybody listening who's interested, like, for example, I have not encountered Microscope RPG, and in fact, when I type that in at BoardGameGeek, it doesn't bring up anything. So where's the magnet site to find some of the games you're talking about? Well, first of all, you can't be on BoardGameGeek. You have to be in the RPG Geek site, which is right next door. Ah, Um, yes, of course. Okay, got it. So there actually, sadly, isn't one 
right now running, but there's an old archive site that was the heart of this called The Forge, run by Ron Edwards, who was one of the originating, originating people. And actually, I should just give a shout out. The articles on this site were some of the most influential for me in thinking about games because he's so good and the people on that site are so good. It, there's a little archive of all their thinking, but thinking about how different point systems shape and influence how people interact. And some of the people coming out of this trying to struggle against D&D created systems like, um, uh, so fate has the system where you can spend your fate points to activate your character, your character traits to give you bonuses, but you get fate points by acting out of your personality characteristics in a way that get you and your party into trouble. So it incentivizes narrative <laughs> building from the characters out of their <laughs> characteristics. And like that stuff, there's some like clever point systeming. Thank you. And, you know, you have reminded me, of course, there is RPGGeek.com, which yeah. is, in fact, uh, just almost a, a subsite of Board Game Geek. And that is where Microscope and many others I see are there. Well, T, again, thank you. You've been so generous with your time this week. And most important of all, I, I made a new friend. So thank you so much for generously sharing who and what you are and what you think and helping us be more self-aware, among many other things, especially as gamers, whether or not we know we're in the game we're playing. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 